Well, hello everybody and welcome to the next episode in my podcast series, Did It Anyway. I always say I'm super excited to have my guests on and today is absolutely no different. I'm really, really excited to have the guest on that we have on today. Uh, about a year ago, I was lucky enough or I'm not sure if it's lucky, but I wrote a book <laughs> and uh, <laughs> to be able to write a book and, and through that process, I needed to get an editor because I'm clearly not... Um, the most eloquent in my writing and so I certainly needed some help along the way and I, I jumped online and did a search for um, somebody to help me to tell my story um, which is my book didn't uh, do it anyway by the way jump on and have a look <laughs> uh, but I came across this lady by the name of Laura Thomas um, who lives in Colorado in the United States and had an amazing experience with her as I wrote my story and I would send her stuff very nervously, send her uh, my information that I'd written down, my manuscript, and she was very gentle and very kind and gave me the feedback in a very nice way and, and we slowly over the next few months wrote, um, wrote my book, Do It Anyway, and so I really am appreciative of her help. But there was a reason that I asked her to be my, uh, my editor um, and and that reason is why she's actually going to share some thoughts with us today. Um, but she has an amazing story. And when I, when I saw her online and learnt more about um, her story, um, her story of resilience and courage and strength in overcoming huge over adversity in her life um, was inspiring to me. That's why I got her to help write my book. And that's why I've got her on today. So I'm going to first off just introduce uh, Laura Thomas from Colorado and she's going to just introduce herself and tell a little bit about herself. So over to you, Laura. Mm, thank you so much, Baron, And hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Laura and I am a writer, um, a speaker and a performer. And as Baron said, a professional editor. And one of my missions in life is to help people tell their stories and to also help people connect their hearts minds and bodies and we're going to get into a little bit of my story but you'll realize that uh, I don't shy away from difficult experiences in life and I want to help people move through their difficult experiences too so that we can all feel a little bit more whole make a little bit more sense from the things that don't really make sense um, and kind of find our way through to greater connection to everybody else. Now I uh, thank you very much for that I think that today is a a little bit of payback because I remember when we were doing, when we were creating my book, when I was writing my book, I would write a bit and send it to Laura and she'd give me a bit of feedback. I remember I wrote a good portion of it and I sent it to Laura and she said to me, Baron, I feel like you're keeping me at arm's distance. I need you to get more mm. raw and more real. And so now we're going to go the other <laughs> way. Your turn, Laura. Payback. <laughs> so but your story is, your story is amazing. And, and I, um, I'm going to start off by saying a couple of things for those that are listening today. We, we, we cover some pretty raw topics on this podcast deliberately because I want people to tell their story. You know, I have a forum to tell my story. I, I wrote a book and then I, I speak, but um, some people don't have that opportunity to tell their story. And there's great power when people share, excuse me, when people share um, the, the challenging parts of their lives and how they were able to overcome. Because when someone's listening, they can then take lessons out of that um, to improve things in their lives, to overcome the things that they're dealing with. And so we deliberately on this podcast, I won't shy away from it, we talk about things that are really, really challenging that sometimes people um, don't ever want to talk about. And today is absolutely one of those times. And so for those that are listening, please be aware that it will. there's some raw discussion here about emotions and feelings and, um, and we don't shy away from that. And today 
um, Laura is going to tell her story that she does tell in a, in a play that she does, a one-woman play, which she'll tell us a bit more about later. Um, but she had some real tragedy happen in her life. But the way she's come out the backside of it is what is most impressive. But to start off telling the story, I just want you to know that this, today's session will deal with suicide. Um, and Laura's going to tell the story of her brother um, who has been through this experience and, um, and the effect that it had on her. And, and so I just want to be aware, everyone to be aware that that's what we're talking about today. And sometimes that can be challenging to talk about. So just a little disclaimer for those that are listening today. Um, but I'm going to throw to you, Laura, and I want you to take us back in time just a little bit into January 2011. Maybe give us a bit of the situation of what was going on in your life and then what happened. Mm. So in January 2011, I was a senior at university. I was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, and I was sort of getting ready to launch out into my life. I had studied psychology. I thought I'd maybe go on to be a psychologist. I wasn't the most confident person. I, um, I struggled a lot with self-doubt. I struggled a lot with feeling valuable and understanding what my unique gifts were in this world. Um, and I grew up in a slightly chaotic household. I have amazingly loving parents. My dad was a airline pilot, so he was gone half the time growing up. And my mom um, basically raised my brother and me the other half of the time. And she struggled with mental illness. And so we had some upheaval in our household. And I had a brother who was three years older. And just to give the lay of the land of my family dynamic, he was really my rock. He, he was unlike typical older brothers. He didn't tease me. He didn't hang out with his friends and neglect me. He always invited me into whatever he was doing. And he was somebody who was so confident in who he was. It was kind of the mirror and were more like the opposite of who I was, whereas I was a little bit more insecure. My brother Scott was very confident. He didn't seem to care what people thought about him. He really followed his own dreams and, and danced to the beat of his own drum. So he was both somebody that I really looked up to and somebody who was my stability and my safety in my life. Um, so in January, I'm getting ready to graduate. I'll be graduating later that year in May. Um, and I've got a, I'm basically an overachiever. I've got five different jobs. And it was one evening when I was working at one of my restaurants where I, the restaurant where I worked that I saw that I had a missed call from my dad. And I don't know if anybody else is, can relate to this experience, but my parents don't call me. They wait for me to call them. <laughs> and yep. so there's, Something that I, I immediately knew something was wrong because my parents never call. And if they would, he probably, my dad probably wouldn't have left a message. So immediately there was this sense that um, I was anticipating with dread something was wrong. But I was at work, and so I continued with the process of work. It wasn't until I was on my way home, and I was actually in the middle of a grocery store. I don't know what compelled me to call him back in the middle of a grocery store, and maybe it was that I felt like I needed to be somewhere that felt really real with other people to embrace whatever it was that was going to come my way. And it, there was every chance that I could have been overreacting. I really didn't know what was happening, but I sort of had this foreboding sense. And uh, he told me on this phone call, that my brother Scott, three years older, had jumped off the roof of his 14-story apartment building in New York. 
And immediately I felt like the floor had dissolved beneath me and I was just plummeting into a black well of nothing. I, I both couldn't make sense of those words and I felt my body reacting so violently to them. And the next words out of his mouth were, and he's alive, which to give wow. a little bit of context, I didn't know this at the time, but uh, most people, people die falling off one story if they fall wrong. Most people don't survive six stories. He fell 14 stories, landed on pavement, and he lived. Oh, and this was the start of a totally different direction of my life. And I think when great tragedy like this strikes, of course you can't see anything good from it. It really is this survival mode that kicks in right away. And I felt that survival mode kick in um, and, and didn't even know how to talk to my dad with this news. Uh, but basically we didn't have much other information at that time. Um, my dad and mom were living in Minnesota. Scott was in New York again, and I was in Wisconsin. So we were all in these disparate places. And he said that the cops had found, or excuse me, somebody on the on uh, the sidewalk had found him, and the cops had called my dad and basically said he's alive. He's supposedly stabilized in the hospital, but we don't have any information of him. And because Scott didn't have any ID on him when he was taken to the hospital. There wasn't even record of him in the hospital, so my parents for a little while couldn't find him because when somebody's admitted um, and they're unidentifiable, they're given a name like John Doe, and I think he actually had the name John Doe. Yeah. Um, and so immediately I thought, you know, I was trying to go into this this action-oriented mode, and that that was really how my life was oriented. It's like, what can I do? How can I fix this? And everywhere my mind went, it felt like it was short circuiting. Um, so I had just the immediate effect of shock and trauma and both numbness and hysterical tears in the middle of this grocery store breaking down. Um, and my dad at that time said that he and my mom were going to go to New York to go find Scott and go be with him. And he told me that I couldn't come. And at that time, that was I, I couldn't believe that those were the words he was telling me. I felt like he was keeping me away from this person who was my gravity and my orientation and world in the world. And it wasn't until later that I had thought that maybe my dad wanted to assess the situation first. And the thing with something like this is there's no right answer. Everybody is literally making it up as they go along mm -hmm. and reacting out of fear and <clears throat> trauma and um, all the terrible heartbreak of especially a suicide attempt. And so I think that he was trying to protect me, but um, I was then stranded in Wisconsin with uh, basically nobody in terms of my family. Um, and as a lot of us know, something like suicide is pretty um, taboo. We don't talk about it. And there was kind of this period where my parents said, let us figure out the situation. And I cannot tell you how long those days felt when I stayed in school with nobody uh, who kind of knew about the situation to support me. And I told a couple close friends um, and nobody knows what to say in a situation like that too. And, and not being able to be there with my family. So the immediate trauma was really intense. Um, how long did it take and, for, your, and it, for your parents to find him? They flew out the next morning. So we got the news in the evening. Uh, they flew out the next morning and they basically barreled into the hospital. And I think my mom kind of sailed past security guards and like 
oriented from some internal motherly fierce lioness compass to my brother's bedside. So they found him as soon as they arrived and they knew what hospital he'd been taken to. They just didn't know where he was. So he'd been taken to the ICU. Yeah. They, his injuries were um, remarkably mild given the severe impact he endured. He had a torn, what's called a femoral artery, which is basically right at where your hip is connecting your leg to your torso, which would have killed him if he hadn't gotten to the hospital and they took him to surgery and they basically patched that up right away and saved him. And then he had a shattered right hip socket and then he had broken eye sockets because he landed on his face. But beyond that, the only other injuries were just from the impact. His organs uh, were basically deeply bruised, including his lungs. So if he hadn't had modern medicine, he would have died instantly. Um, but even with the, uh, the amazing fall that he had, he, he didn't have more injuries than that. So they were there with him right away, basically, wow. <laughs> a day later. That is amazing. And so then, um, so you found out, and you haven't gone yet. You're just waiting and mm-hmm. waiting on the information. How long until you actually went to see your brother? It was about a week. It was about a week of uh, being in Wisconsin before I could go to see him. And the really interesting thing, I think, is, um, I mean, trauma is so interesting in multiple ways, but there's something about not actually seeing something that's happened that makes it really hard to believe. I was sort of lost in this dreamlike state of just expecting to wake up or for Scott to call me and somehow let me know that this wasn't actually reality. It was, it was hard to conceptualize that this was my new reality because it was so drastically different from everything my 22 years had been up until this point. And I never, ever would have dreamed something like this befalling our family, especially not from Scott, who really did seem like the strongest among all of us. Was there, was there a lead up to this or did this just really come out of the blue? Was there, was there signs? I mean, out? yeah, I think I'm certainly not unique in being really shocked by a situation like this, but it truly did come out of nowhere. Um, I had seen Scott the December prior, just a, like a month before um, he'd been home for Christmas. He, I got the news about him jumping on January 20th. So I had seen him December 25th. I remembered he was, he seemed, I mean, my brother was a little weird. He was very creative. He was an actor. He was um, a veritable genius, but um, he was normal for Scott at that time. And I remember we just got to spend this amazing time together. He gave me these, like a hilarious gift of a big fuzzy hat that looked like a giant Viking helmet. And I remember that when I, I went with him to uh, drop him off at the airport and just giving him this big hug and feeling so grateful to have this amazing person in my life. So when I did get the news that he had jumped, it, it, I really couldn't believe it because it was the farthest reality I ever would have I would have anticipated that I would suffer something like that before Scott would have because I was the one who suffered from a lot of insecurities so I did not see this coming at all nobody did none of his friends or or my family so so from that point um you mentioned that he that changed him a bit and over the next few months um he had some really serious challenges can you tell us a little bit about what happened over the next sort of six months or so Yeah, for the next couple of months, for a while, Scott was in a coma, and it was actually an induced coma. His uh, body temperature was too high to fight off the infection 
um, of the bruising and he actually contracted pneumonia in the hospital. So they kept him in a coma. And it was, in some ways, it was actually easier to be with him when he was in his coma because it was sort of had this illusion that he was just asleep. Um, and when I would go to see him the first time, the first couple of times, he still looked like my brother and he just had a lot of bruising all over his body and he was hooked up to machines that helped him breathe um, and other machines that kept his body in alignment with his broken hip socket. So it was sort of, again, this aspect of trauma and such a different reality that's hard to conceptualize. It was, I could see him and I could see that he was somewhat broken in various places, but he still looked like my sleeping brother um, who I would go down and wake up before school almost every morning in high school because uh, he was a terrible morning person. And then when he finally did wake up, it's almost like the shock of him waking up was equally as great as the shock of him jumping because we realized that he was not the same person. And um, what I mean by that is that his, his personality was changed. It's really challenging when somebody wakes up from a great physical trauma to kind of backtrack and figure out what happened and I'll share what we pieced together, but um, it ended up being a situation where we ultimately didn't fully know. And that's something that I think, especially if somebody has a successful suicide attempt first, it can be really, really hard to reconcile that act and to try to understand. Um, so Scott woke up and he, he had a flat affect, which means he just didn't have any emotion he was he spoke in this monotone voice and it was so painful to see because he had been this bright expressive light in the world and he was diagnosed over the course of a couple months he regained the ability to speak uh which he had lost for a little while and and he actually had a, a tracheotomy so a hole cut out of his throat um to feed down his feeding tube um so they had to block that off there are all these medical things that happened but basically he was able to speak again um, and even his voice didn't sound like the Scott I knew. I mean, just these tiny little things that that just continued to shatter my world. He was diagnosed by psychologists as a psychiatrist, rather, as schizophrenic. And they determined that he had had a psychotic break before he jumped. And we never really knew what that meant or why. No. One of our sus suspicions is that, um, interestingly, at age 25, young men who are susceptible to a psychotic break, and there's a lot of mental illness in my history, my family history, if they smoke marijuana, they, it can induce a psychotic break. So that's one theory that we have. Um, and then the pill that was even harder to swallow that I, I still, honestly, I don't know how to reconcile today is a psychologist determined that he had been schizophrenic for over a, a year before he jumped which when I told you that I had Christmas with him and he seemed like his normal self, he had visited me in Madison at school the summer before. I, I could not reconcile that bit of information. I really didn't know that somebody could be schizophrenic um, and, and I couldn't see the difference. So that was something that was, basically we were trying to piece together the story from somebody who had a swollen brain from a really traumatic injury um, and who had this changed personality. And it was, um, this was the point in my family's journey through this experience where we all started to deal with it differently. And my way of trying to deal with it was basically to try to not explain because I felt like I would never be able to get to the root cause of what had happened. 
um, and I basically just wanted to survive. Whereas my mom, she really wanted to figure things out. So she was going into Scott's phone and text messages and computer and really trying to piece together information to find some harmony. And for my dad, um, he really found his way forward in space at that time. So I think that some, something like this also makes it hard for a family to go through together because you can start to, your coping mechanisms are all different and we all had different ones. Um, so that first news of when Scott jumped, I think was the time that we were the closest together in the experience because all we could feel was just deep, deep sadness for what had happened. And thereafter, it's this weird place of trying to piece your life back together, even as a trauma is still ongoing. Yeah. Wow. And you, something that you don't think about that everyone's going to respond in a different way. And so then was there feelings of feeling alone at that point as you work through that? Immensely so. Yeah. I continued going to school to finish out my year. Um, I really didn't know what else to do. It's kind of like when there's a big emergency, you sort of want to like be there like the first responder, but it was this weird situation of when I would visit all there was to do around Scott was basically to sit in the hospital all day long as the doctors cared for him. And the process of healing is a really slow, arduous one. And you're just with your thoughts all day long um, as machines are beeping and flaring. So I, I kind of weighed the options and to the best extent that I could make a decision at that time when I felt like I really didn't have control over even my thoughts or my ability to make decisions. I decided to stay in school, which kind of split my life. I felt like I wasn't the person who I used to be at school because I had this looming tragedy that really influenced my ability to relate to people. All of a sudden, I felt like I saw the world really differently. And I was 22. So a lot of my friends were really excited to graduate and they maybe were in relationships and they were applying for jobs. And it's sort of like the world was at their feet. And I knew what that had felt like, but I really realized that I was no longer there. I was just trying to survive day to day. And some days I, I couldn't get out of bed. I was just sobbing all day long in bed because I couldn't make sense of what was happening in my life. And I didn't know how I was going to get through. And then other times when I was in, at the hospital, to see Scott as a different person and to hear, and he had some of his memories, like he was a, a clean slate, but he, he, his emotional um, quality and the way in which he, he talked and interacted with people, it was entirely different. He, had, he basically had um, no ability to relate to people on an emotional level. So he was kind of almost this, um, he was like one-toned robot, um, which is maybe not the best description, but that's kind of how it felt. So I, I felt like that was glaring in my face every time I was there and I really couldn't escape the fact that my brother was no longer there and I didn't know if he'd ever come back. And then I felt like I couldn't relate to my parents too because they were with Scott all the time. And so they kind of had their routine down and they supported each other. And it was this realization that they still had each other and my teammate in life had been Scott. And, yeah. and he was there, but he wasn't. wasn't and so waiting. I felt so, yeah, I was so alone there. And I really felt like I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. And I, I didn't even know what to do to ask for help. And you know what's interesting about that? And I want to move on with the story as, as, as it progresses to the October, which is obviously a really important time. But, but just on that point, sometimes I think we look 
at people and their situations and maybe they've had a, a tragedy happen like that but some people may have viewed your situation as he's getting better he's in the hospital he's getting better but that doesn't alleviate the pain that you're feeling at that point in time and it just as you were talking it made me really aware of people who just because things are kind of on the mend doesn't mean that experience is is easy for those that are still involved and clearly right then at that point in time even though it seemed as though Scott was uh, maybe slowly healing slowly getting better that experience for you is still devastating and still extremely hard to cope with um, the people, you know, his close family and friends around him. That's such a good reflection because I feel like in our society, we don't really have a good way to support people through grief. And so it makes a lot of people uncomfortable and the immediate reaction is kind of waiting for them to get over it. Yeah. And I did kind of feel like both that I felt guilty for still doing poorly when as you said some of the news was really great he was able to progress out of different levels of severity in the hospital it's kind of like the news was positive things were in a good direction and um you still and felt, felt like crap. um i still felt like crap and i felt really guilty for that and that i couldn't celebrate his wins yeah. because i felt so lost and broken and i couldn't go to anybody because i think that i was under the impression that they kind of felt like whether or not this was accurate like um you know, now you're just choosing to be pessimistic yeah. or shouldn't you be over this by now? Like things are looking up. You should hold on to the, like the victories when, um, when my, my spirit felt so wounded that I, I could see them. And I felt like I had to pretend, I felt like I had to be somebody different around everybody else to appear positive, um, and to keep up good spirits for my family. It was like wearing a mask, but underneath it, um, I really did feel like crap. Yeah. Now, if we, and, and I, I, I feel like I, I don't understand how you felt, but I could only imagine what that would be like. I'm very close to my brothers and sisters. I could only imagine what that experience would be like. It would be a horrendous experience. I want to take you forward a little bit from there. Um, now, you mentioned to me prior to us having this um, discussion now that um, over the next, after he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, that he was psychotic, mm -hmm. you, you over the next few months, he was sort of in and out of, in I guess, hospitals or institutions or whatever we want to call them, um, to get the help mm -hmm. that that he needed. Um, but can you just tell us the events um, that happened in October um, in the lead up to his eventual suicide? Mm. So in October, I was um, I'd actually moved to Australia. I had graduated. My parents almost didn't make my graduation because Scott was going to be moved from one facility facility to another. I felt like there was, there was, no, and again, there's, I still feel some of the shame um, and guilt come up saying this. So I just want to recognize that um, some of our, our Western mentality is still with me, but I felt like there was nothing to celebrate in my life. I had graduated with the utmost honors, all of this, and I, I still felt empty inside. Um, so I felt like I just need to get as far away as possible from this experience um, and try to figure out who I am in this new reality of my life. Scott had been um, moved out of inpatient therapy and he was going to outpatient therapy. Um, and he was actually, that was being overseen by somebody else because to mention briefly, um, in his new personality, he really didn't want anything to do with my family at this point. He resented the reliance that he had on my parents and and he didn't want any contact with them which as you can imagine was exceptionally heartbreaking. just heartbreaking for them exactly and he asked me to tell them 
um, which was the hardest conversation I think I will ever have in my life to deliver that news. So Scott was under somebody else's care. My parents are back in Minnesota trying to heal on their own, and I just take off to the other side of the world looking for my own sense of healing. I was staying with family friends in Melbourne. Um, I had been applying to jobs. I was looking for a new place to stay with some flatmates. And um, again, it's that I had trauma about around phone calls after that first call I got from my dad. Every time the phone rang, I would my body would just start shaking because I was expecting terrible news. Um, it's like this experience lived in my cells. So I was living in Melbourne, and I there was a, a call to the house at 4 a.m. Um, and the my family friend answered it, and he told me that my parents wanted to talk to me on Skype. And at that moment, I just knew I knew that Scott was dead. And there were some events that had led up to this experience. Scott had, he, he was sliding downhill mentally. Um, he was having a manic episode again. So he was sort of becoming more and more out of control. He ran away from the home where he was living and the cops found him. He was uh, checked into a, a psychology ward, a psych ward on a high suicide watch. And through a manner of circumstances, um, he ended up being on his own and he found a plastic bag and he asphyxiated himself. And my parents had in that time flown from Minnesota to Kentucky to go and try to sort things out. And they were just miles away um, and they were called in to come identify his body. And so I got this news from my parents and it was this um, devastating sense of loss. There was that realization that I will never see this person who was so much to me in my life ever again. Any hope that he could have been, become the Scott that I knew again was gone. And at the same time, there was this warring sense of relief, which is really hard to talk about in our society again, that um, we were living with a lot of pain and suffering. And by we, I also include Scott. He had told me that um, he didn't feel like himself. He knew he was changed. And I think that that pain was overwhelming for him, even though he couldn't express it in an emotional way that he used to be able to. So I felt um, in some ways, like I, even though I couldn't see our way forward and it looked pretty dark and grim when he did pass, that there, there had been some, some stain that kind of lifted a little bit. And of course, that's not to say that I wouldn't have him back in a moment if I could, all of that. But I think it's a real thing that a lot of us experiences and, and not many of us can talk about that there was a relief from suffering for him and from my parents who would live with the fact that they wanted to save their son always and he wouldn't let them. And then for me to, to feel like, um, like my world was topsy-turvy and I just could not find my footing. So that was the start of this next chapter of my life was to find healing with the, the pretty solid reality that Scott was ultimately gone and he wouldn't come back. Something that you mentioned before we jumped on this call as well, which was really interesting to me because we discussed that feeling of, um, of almost relief, like you just mentioned there. And you said this, these words, which were interesting. You said, you know, Baron, almost instantaneously, I felt relief and I felt like a monster. Mm. And that really made me sad. Mm. And I thought after going through such a horrendous experience, I think our, our, our society um, causes societal issues cause us to feel in that way, I guess, and have that 
that feeling of that's not okay to feel that way. And, and I know that doesn't mean that you loved him any less, but the reality of the situation that you were living every day would cause you to feel that there's some sort of element of relief because he was so troubled and so challenged. And, and it was a, such a painful experience for both you, your parents, for him and other family members, I've no doubt, um, and friends that, that were going through it. Um, but he didn't, mm. he didn't want to be saved by your parents. And that's, you know, so, but you shouldn't feel like a monster, I guess is my thinking. <laughs> Right. You're so, yeah, absolutely. And if anybody told me that they had felt that, I would never say that they were a monster. You know, sometimes we put different expectations on ourselves than we allow for others. And it's a really human emotion. And it, there's certain things that, we, that we've kind of been taught to shame and we have a hard time talking about because we think it's an inherently monstrous thing. And it's not. Something like grief and loss brings up a lot of emotions. And it's taken me a long time to realize that none of them are wrong. And a, a new way to learn to hold myself through that experience has been born from being with other people going through that experience and being able to look at them and think to myself, you are so loved. There is nothing wrong with this experience. And I really try to be there with them while they move through those emotions because they don't go away by stuffing them down. I've definitely learned that. And the monstrousness of the instant relief was something I was really afraid to talk about for a long time because it, it sounds horrible to, I thought it sounds horrible to say, but when you're with people who know what that experience is, is like, you realize that you're not the only one who goes through it by any means. Yeah. Now you obviously you had some pretty dark times after your, your brother passed away. I want to move on from that. I mean, I think you expressed that pretty well before of those, just the lonely feeling that you felt because this was your partner in crime effectively, um, who, mm -hmm. who was no longer there. And that loss must have been completely and utterly devastating. And you, um, you mentioned how it was just so dark. It was just, you couldn't mm. feel happy in, in anything that you're experiencing. The good things that were happening in your life, you still saw the crap that was going on. And I assume it was still the same after that. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to I move forward a little bit, if we could, where about a year later, you went and had an experience that you feel changed your stars. Um, and we're able to start to move forward. Uh, you never forget these experiences. You never, I don't think you ever get over these experiences, but it allowed you to continue to actually start moving forward in a more positive way. Can you tell us about that experience that you had in August, 2012? Absolutely. I think that there's something that's um, kind of romanticized about trauma and change like there's a uh, like something happens right away and suddenly you're an entirely different person and like you know you've moved through it as you say um or or some people use the language like gotten over it which i've realized that you never get over this no. stuff it just continues to change and evolve in your life um but it will always be a part of the tapestry of who you are so for me it actually took a year of getting a lot worse of not being able to hold my grief and my sadness and not realizing that I needed other people to hold it with me. And that was something that I could ask for. So my health declined, my physical health, my mental health, certainly my spiritual health. And I really got to a place where I felt like I was at the end of my rope. Um, and as I mentioned to you, I felt like my life was either going to go one of two ways. It was either going to continue spiraling down even deeper until I was just a shell of a person 
or it had to get better. And I didn't know how it was going to get better, but uh, I surrendered to this experience my friend had told me about, which was to go to a 10-day meditation retreat, silent meditation retreat, getting up at four in the morning and basically meditating most of the day until we go to bed at 9 p.m. at night. And I think it was only because I was not in my right head that I could say yes to something like this at that time, not knowing what I was getting myself into fully. And it changed my life, Baron. For me, I had never really, I didn't know that I had a relationship to myself. And I didn't know that the relationship with myself had been so negative. And I had all these beliefs about myself, that I wasn't a strong person, that I wasn't resilient, that I could, I didn't think I would be able to ever survive from a tragedy like this experience with Scott and become somebody who could be strong and live to support others. A lot of my continued suffering came from this place of um, basically a really terrible relationship to myself. Um, and I continued to keep myself down and suffering because it actually felt more comfortable than realizing that I had an opportunity to get better and to turn this tragedy into something beautiful. That kind of felt like I'm not that person. Other people do these things. And that meditation retreat gave me these practical tools to both look inside my mind and realize that all these opinions I had about myself, they were a story. And I could choose a different story, which I actually think is yeah. a secret that Scott had all along to being the most resilient person I have ever met, even though he had this aspect to his life, um, which led to, it was a kind of a catalyst for my change. And then I was also given tools to change that relationship and to find a different narrative going forward. And one that was one that I chose rather than was this default message that I had fed for the majority of my life. And through that experience, again, change takes a long time. It's ongoing. We don't wake up and suddenly we're Tony Robbins and we're able to like shout really loudly and support a lot of people. It takes a long time to become somebody new and to gain these tools. But I felt like I had been given a glimpse of a different possibility. And I had seen that that seed existed in me. And all it took was just turning towards myself and starting to say yes, as, a, as opposed to starting to as opposed to rejecting who I was all the time, I wanted to start embracing myself and I wanted to start learning to love myself because that was the key to healing and moving forward. Now I have a question. I, I, I love what mm -hmm. you just said there. What, a, what an amazing transformation. We're going to talk about that in a sec, but I do have a question about the 10, ten days silent meditation retreat. You're literally not talking yeah. for 10 full days. I didn't talk and you can't even look at people. It sounds so weird. Um, but basically you're trying to reduce all stimulus. So you look down at people's feet. So I sort of like identified people by their shoes and their feet, but I didn't even know what their faces looked like. It was remarkable. <laughs> that is crazy. So you didn't speak for 10 days, not a word, not one word, not a word. Yep. Can you speak to yourself? Can you go into a room and just talk to yourself? So there's words coming out or no, that's not a thing. I suppose you could. I don't think it would be encouraged. Um, I didn't. So I was like, I'm going all in. The only oh, exception man. is maybe I talked in my sleep, but that was involuntary. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's courageous <laughs> to do that. I don't know. I think I talk plenty, so I'd struggle big time um, going to one of those. <laughs> I would imagine that took a lot of self-control for you as well, Laura. <laughs> it was. <laughs> 
you said a couple of things there that really stood out to me and I just want to touch on those just a little bit. You mentioned that you had a really mm. negative relationship with yourself and that can come mm. off a, a variety of things, but that you were comfortable in your negativity. And I think a mm. lot of us find ourselves in that situation sometimes where we go through a tough time, a challenging experience, whatever it is, it's, it, it doesn't need to be suicide is very dramatic, but it doesn't need to be that dramatic. And sometimes we go through these experiences and because things get a bit challenging, we go, well, this is, I can wallow in this or I can be comfortable in it and I can just mm. sit in it. I'm just going to sit in it and stay here because that's the easy option. But you said something that was really interesting. You said, um, it takes time to become someone new. And, it, and, mm. and, and you've given a good example of how it doesn't just take time, it takes effort. And there's 10 days mm. silent meditation retreat. Now, now, everyone listening doesn't need to go on a silent meditation retreat, but, but it sort of shows to me that we need to get in touch with ourselves just a little bit and realize that we need to treat ourselves well and be positive with ourselves that we can achieve good things, but it takes time and not to expect mm. those results instantaneously. Absolutely. Especially if you're walking a journey that requires forgiveness of yourself. I held, I'd been, you know, pretty terrible to myself in my head for many years. I had to forgive myself for all of that. If I was going to move forward in my life, expecting to become kind of somebody new and somebody who could appreciate the gifts that my life had given me, it wasn't going to happen if I continued to harbor negative feelings towards myself. I really had to befriend myself and things like forgiveness and self-love and compassion. Those things do take a lot of time because there are layers of negativity that we've built up that are going to take a while to soften and to let in a new relationship. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that we're very quick to forgive others and to love other people, yeah. and have compassion for other people, but sometimes, especially when we're in a challenging situation, we're really, really hard on ourselves and don't give ourselves the same latitude as we give to other people. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, it doesn't make sense because you think that if you want to have a good life, you should be good to yourself first. But it, for some reason, especially in our Western culture, it, it doesn't work that way. So we have to unlearn unkindness to ourselves and instead learn how to be kind. And I think sometimes that's, that's developed by what we see around us from, from life in Western culture is very much in comparison to other people's and other people's mm. lives. And we, we think we don't measure up, but what we don't see, and this is why we're doing this podcast. What we don't see is the crap that goes on in their life. We don't see the day to day battles that they face. And sometimes we look at these people on TV, on Instagram, on in media, wherever, and everybody pitches, everyone tells their story online about how amazing their life is, which is great. But then we can sometimes reflect on our own life and think it's not quite so good. But the reality is they're dealing with, people are dealing with the same type of things that we're dealing with. They took a photo of a selfie at the front of their room uh, or one area in their room. But if you turn the camera a meter the other way, it's a disaster. <laughs> but that, that, doesn't, that doesn't come up. And so I, I like the raw nature of this podcast series simply because people are going through some challenging stuff. And sometimes we look at other people's lives and think it's so much better than we compare. And then we get hard on ourselves, like you've just mentioned, but we don't. We, that we need to realize that most people are going through the similar type of things and have similar type experiences in their life as we do. Always. We don't know how to be vulnerable. Nobody taught us vulnerability 101 in grade school. We learned facade, just like 
social media now gives us an opportunity, as you mentioned, to put out a projection of kind of our ideal self. And one of the reasons is that we feel like if we were to be vulnerable in that space, which social media might not be the best place to actually share your deepest, darkest secrets. Agreed. But agreed. what we're afraid of is that, like, is that we'll get burned. And it's very possible in the past that we have. Because in addition to learning how to be vulnerable, we have to learn how to support other people being vulnerable so that they feel accepted and embraced, even as they share what they might think are monstrous thoughts. And one of the greatest gifts, I mean, again, it's so weird, I think, sometimes to talk about gifts from tragedy, but Scott's passing has taught me so much. It has really allowed me to be the person I always wanted to be and never thought I could be. Um, so I feel like I'm living proof that you can be the person you want to be. It's inside of you. And one of the greatest gifts was in letting me realize, helping me realize that I never know what's going on for somebody else. And I really always give them the benefit of the doubt because those times when I was deep, dark, lost in my sorrow, I'm sure I was callous to people in the checkout line. And I you know, was quick to tear up and I wasn't smiling at people as I was passing them by. I was probably scowling. So many things that when I look at other people who are moving through life, it's easy to jump to an assumption of like, why are they so angry or why are they so rude or whatever it is? Why are they cutting me off? And from this experience with Scott, um, I, I was grateful for any time somebody gave me the benefit of the doubt that I was going through something and I feel like everybody else deserves that. And just as you said, realizing that none of us are perfect and comparison is sort of the death of creativity um, because we shouldn't try to be somebody else. We should try to be our best self, but comparison will always make us feel less than. I love that. Be your best self and stop looking at everyone else. I think that's a great, mm. a great story. Now, what I love about your story as well is that you have the courage to tell um, your story to other people. I love that because it's, this is a, like you mentioned earlier, this is kind of a taboo topic. Um, suicide is so devastating and it's so devastating for um, the people that are left behind. It's devastating for the person. We don't understand what they're experiencing at that point in time for them to go through with that um, horrible thing. Um, but you have the courage to go out and tell your story. And I want you to tell us a little bit about how you do that. What does it look like? And, and you mentioned some feedback that you got that I'd really love you to share as well from the, the play that you do. Sure. So the first thing I started doing to mention briefly um, is I started to write. Writing is really my medium in addition to speaking. And I wanted to get the story down on paper as much for me as it would be for somebody else. So I started writing my memoir. Um, and I realized that writing this story was going to take longer than I expected. I wanted to get it right. And in order to do that, I had some more growing to do. So I sort of just asked myself, well, what's my next best option? Because what I, what I yearned for was conversation. What I yearned for was to create an atmosphere where people could bring all their baggage and they could feel totally accepted. And if they wanted to, they could lay bare some of their baggage for other people to witness and to look at them with love so that they could start rewriting that story of it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to let other people help you hold these things that are too heavy for one person to hold. So I went back to my roots, which is performance. Um, I did a lot of theater and speech growing up. I studied a little bit, continued in college, and I didn't know if this was a thing. I decided if it wasn't, I was gonna invent it, but I wrote a one woman play and I, 
wanted it to be the story of Scott's loss and then my journey through healing, bringing up some of these things that we're talking about so that they're no longer taboo, so that they're no longer shameful. And if anything, I could kind of expose my heart to all the people in the audience and let them, let them decide and sort of realize that, you know, I'm not looking at this girl and thinking how terrible that she thought, she thought these things. I'm looking at her and thinking, I'm so grateful she's sharing this with me because I've been there too. So I started these performances and right at the first performance, I felt like I wanted to avoid that experience of when you go to a really dramatic movie and it's so heartbreaking. You're all sitting in the car, driving home, your family or your friends, and it's like nobody can talk because you're all so <laughs> bruised and wounded from this story and you can't even analyze it because you're just piecing yourself back together. <laughs> and I decided the way I would approach this in my performance is I would host a discussion. So the performance is the first half and the discussion half is the second half. The performance is like the primer for the heart and then the discussion is where the real magic happens because that is when people share anything that they're feeling. They don't have to share it. They can always pass. But some amazing and remarkable things have come from the discussion portion that has let me realize that my story is in service to other people, but, um, but everybody else brings their own wisdom. And that's truly where the magic happens. And um, I think I know which example you were referencing, and I'll share uh, a bit of feedback that I got from somebody after a performance. I was doing this performance actually at my alma mater at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which was kind of this amazing full circle experience to return to the place of my most intense trauma, if it were in any location, that was kind of it for me. And uh, mostly the people at the performance were students. And I wasn't sure how it was going to resonate with students. A lot of older people tend to be drawn to the performances because they know a little bit more grief. Younger people don't always have that kind of experience. But these students so courageously and bravely said, I'm going to show up and at least just see what this is about. And um, tragically, a lot of them had known great sadness. And grief is not just losing somebody. It's losing dreams. It's feeling like your life didn't turn out the way you wanted. It's losing relationships. It's having poor relationships with parents. A young man approached me at the end of the performance and he said, you know what? I never knew what it would be like for my sisters if I followed through with my suicidal ideation. And he just kind of had this shocked look on his face like something new was seeping into his bones and he, he kind of shook his head slowly and he remarked that this performance was so powerful for him to know that his actions would have a big ripple and it would really affect those he loved um, and again suicide is a tangled complicated experience but it was if there were any reaction that I would want from a performance that would be the most powerful that I could probably name is for somebody to at least consider their actions and ask themselves, maybe there's a different way forward through my pain that won't induce the pain in my loved ones the way that, that this young woman has experienced. Wow. I, I think that's an amazing story because you've, you've been able to share your story and the impact to someone else is so significant that they probably will now not go down the path that they had previously thought of, which is, that's so significant, Laura. And I just applaud you for doing what you're doing. I think it's unreal. And, and it takes a lot of courage to get up the front and tell that story because I bet you 
each time you tell it, it's really emotional. Um, and mm -hmm. so that takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable like that. And there's a few things that have really stood out as we've spoken today. And being vulnerable is, is something that I'm a big believer in. And I wasn't before. <laughs> and I think you, you, mm. played, you actually played a huge part in helping me to see the value of that, both for myself and for other people that listen to my story. And, and when we can be vulnerable, you gain this greater respect and connection with other people as you support them in their vulnerability as well, that people can be open. One thing that you said just before that just blew me away. It was awesome. And you said, get other people to hold your baggage. That's too heavy for you to hold. Wow. What a, what an amazing thing to think about. Sometimes we carry so much baggage in our life that is so heavy to bear that we almost can't handle it. When I have an opportunity to speak in front of people, I talk about asking for help and having the courage to ask for help. Um, and it's really along those lines to share, share your story with someone else and they can help hold that burden. They can help hold that baggage. And when it's too heavy, someone else wants to listen and somebody else wants to stand with you and hold those bags. And I thought that was a really great thing that you mentioned there. So thank you. Um, a couple it's so funny when we, Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, please. <laughs> I was just going to remark that it's so funny when we get that 20,000 foot view and to look at ourselves and realize that, why do we think that we're an island? Why do we think that as social beings, we would be able to handle everything that life throws our way by ourselves? We don't learn what our possibilities are in life unless we witness somebody else who has embodied those possibilities. So much of who we are is shaped by the people around us. And that was something that I feel like I had to learn the hard way, but it wasn't until people basically told me, Laura, we want to help you. You know, you don't have to do this alone. That it kind of, it shook me out of that idea that I, that somehow it would be weakness if I couldn't handle all of this alone, which now to me, um, just seems ludicrous. That's um, crazy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I've got the similar type of feelings where you feel like you've got it. You, you're the tough guy. If you can handle it, you can show everyone that you can handle it. But the reality is it never works out very well like that. And on almost every podcast that I've had, the message has been very similar. Talk about it. Like talk to somebody when you're struggling and you feel overwhelmed. It's not a sign of weakness. Just talk to someone. And they, sometimes they get a better view and they have a clearer perspective on life, on your situation, because they're not living it. Um, they may have had some similar situations that they can share as well. And all of a sudden, a couple of things happen. One of them that I really love is that when you share and someone else shares with you, the level of respect for each other goes through the roof. That's the thing I love. Each time I do one of these podcasts, I have such a higher level of respect for the person that, that I'm interviewing because I start to understand more about the challenges they've been through. And it makes me realize how the heck did they cope with that? I could never cope with something like that. And it just gives me a great... Um, respect for them and their ability and their resiliency to be able to deal with those challenges. So um, I just think that's brilliant. The, um, a couple of things that I really want people to take out of this podcast is be vulnerable, support those people who are vulnerable as well and allow them to share their baggage and help them to carry it. Um, forgiving yourself, some self-love and compassion with yourself is really, really important and that it takes time to become someone new. That is a, you know, we go through trauma, we go through tragedy, we go through hard times. We have to give ourselves permission to slowly improve and slowly change. And 
allow that time to be able to, to become someone new. Is there anything else that you wanted to share uh, with those listening, Laura, before we finish? I would love to share a final message. Um, not a day goes by that I don't remember this experience in my life, that I don't think of Scott. And not a day goes by that I don't feel the remarkable gift and opportunity that I have to be alive. That doesn't mean that I'm happy every day, that I don't have problems and struggles and strife, or that I see things in a Pollyanna light. But I find now I'm very familiar with death. And death is no longer something that I fear, but it inspires me to live because I lost somebody in this out of order sense. He died before most people die. And I know some of you listeners will be able to relate to this experience. I feel like I never know when my last day will be. And even when it's hard, I'm able to find just a little bit of gratitude for the fact that I'm still alive, for the fact that I even get to feel anger, for the fact that I even get to feel grief resurface once more, because someone I love and who shaped me no longer has that experience. So whether you're having difficult times in your life, whether you're having a lot of great successes, it will always ebb and flow. Life is this geographic landscape that has mountains and valleys and rivers and streams. Um, I would just encourage you to remember this gift this opportunity, and let that be what guides your life. Uh, I try to connect with that every single day. I'm not perfect. I continue to fail, but I keep coming back to that notion that this life is a gift. It will end, whether it's tomorrow or in 50 years, it will probably be sooner than I feel ready to let go of it. And so in honor of Scott, in honor of myself, in honor of all of you who have the same gift, uh, I at least try to be grateful and to use it to the best extent of my ability. And I would love to invite you to join me in that. Oh, I love that. What a great message, Laura. I think that is a perfect message to finish our podcast on today. <laughs> um, for those that are listening, I always, uh, always say jump on, subscribe to my podcast, share it with your friends. I think there's so much, so much strength gained when we share the challenges that we're having, how we got through them, how we got over them. And when we hear other people's story that sometimes they don't have a forum to tell that story. I'm grateful to be able to share that story with you guys. And so once again, thanks for being a part of it and jump on subscribe. And thanks again, Laura, for jumping on and being a part of this story, uh, being a part of my podcast and telling your story. And um, I wish everyone the best as they go on with their day. Have an awesome day, guys. Take care. Bye.